Right again, ladies. So I <clears throat> hope everybody uh, had a wonderful evening. Um, great to see you all here this morning for our last talk, where we kind of, or at least we tried to wrap everything up. Again, uh, we began on Friday, which seems like a long time ago, by looking at the, the plight of perfectionism and its deeper roots in our own lack of self-love and self-worth. And that the, the solution, remedy, was living out spiritual childhood and looking yesterday the necessity of having a relationship with God the Father, knowing his love for us, learning that art of failure, keep our peace when we fail, understanding our smallness and weakness, and finally of really allowing ourselves to be received by the Father as the prodigal father, the, the father received the prodigal son. And so... A lot of it, I mean, I try to be practical, but a lot of it was sort of very, very nebulous. What I want to do today is talk about not so much how to live it out, but what it looks like when it is lived out. I'll draw a little bit, I guess, from inspiration of St. Therese and the other saints and scriptures, but a lot of it, I think, is just going to come from my own experience of knowing and relating to people whom I believe live it out. I think if we sort of put in our minds, what do we think are the characteristics or the traits of a person that we think have that, has that childlike spirit that lives as a daughter of the Father? I'm sure we could come up with a ton of different traits, and there's no way that we can make a comprehensive list. Uh, but what I want to do is look at some of them. So again, uh, let me just make a, a little note here. A lot of what I've talked about today has been certain, though, over the course of the weekend, has been inspired by St. Therese. St. Therese is my favorite saint. She's probably the only saint I pray to these days. There's too many saints. I'm too ADD. I get confused. And St. Therese is a little way, I think she is the prophet for, uh, for our times. But I'm not saying that what I've proposed or what I'm going to propose today is her vision. Uh, there are certain elements that she really focuses on that I really didn't focus on. There are certain things that I said about being received in the, by the Father that really she doesn't talk about as much. She really doesn't allude to. And me drawing from her thinking is using her to sort of corroborate what I am saying. You really want to see what that spiritual childhood looks like. There are plenty of books. A couple of the books that I suggested uh, really do a good job of fleshing that out. And so, as I said, the, the traits or the characteristics that I'm going to talk about today don't necessarily come directly from Therese, but from my own experience uh, in seeing what I think theology is and what I see it lived out. I'm not saying I live it out in my life at all. I don't really do, wish I would do more of these things, but uh, of the people that I think really encapsulate these characteristics. So I have about 10 of them. The first one... And the last one are going to be the most important. I'm not saying ignore the ones in the middle, but at least pay attention to number one and number 10. And number one is one that I've talked about, or at least alluded to throughout the whole course of our time together. The person who is a perfectionist often lives with self-doubt, lives with that lack of love, lives outside of the knowledge of the love of the Father. But first and foremost, the person who is living out spiritual childhood is doing all the things we talked about 
exhibits the characteristic of confidence. Confidence. The spiritual child, the saint, is someone who is supremely confident. Confident that comes from living their identity in the love of the Father. They're in that, remember I talked about that sunlight. They're there. They're confident. They know who they are. They're secure in their identity. And we can see it on a natural level. Studies shown that young people who grow up receiving love in a stable household grow up in general to be much more successful, much more well-balanced, much more confident and well-rounded because they know their identity. They know themselves as loved. And so we can live in the love of God, our Heavenly Father, and that knowledge, there comes a great confidence with it. And it's funny, the word itself comes from two Latin words, com fidere, with trust, with faith. This is the whole entire thing we're talking about. The child knows the love of the Father and trusts that he wants what's good for her. Trusts that he has his hand in her life. Trust that he is there guiding her, that she doesn't have to worry. And so that confidence comes from the trust, the knowledge of the love. There's no need to impress. There's no need to be perfect because you know your love for who you are. You know the Father loves you and you can live in that confidence. Certainly, there are going to be temptations to doubt. Again, in all these things, I'm not saying the person who lives it it's going to live it 24 hours a day. There are going to be times of self-doubt. There are going to be times of questioning. They're going to realize, wait a second, this is not who I am. And then guide back into living in the light of that confidence of a child of God. I can see it. It's not prideful. Some people say, well, Father, this is very, very prideful. No, I'm not talking about that at all. Prideful is a false confidence, relying on their own strength. Their own identity is defined by themselves. But here, it can't be confidence because your identity is defined by your relationship with God the Father. You know, one of the most shocking things about Therese, particularly if you read towards the end of her life, she knew she was going to be a saint. She was confident she was going to be a saint. And that was a scandal to a lot of people. Oh, no, the saint's a person. It's like, oh, I'm a sinner. I'm terrible. I'm miserable. And maybe, indeed, that's could be somebody, uh, but the reality is she was so confident in the love of the Father, she knew that she was going to be with Jesus. She knew she was going to be with the Father, and so she, she never bragged about it, but there was that great confidence. And so, I mean, I think we all know this. A person who is genuinely living that childhood is confident the Father is going to take care of them, confident the Father loves them, confident in their identity. And what it does is it draws other people to that person. How many of you know someone like this? Raise your hand. Yeah. It's a confident person, and it comes from a genuine humility. But first and foremost is that confidence. And that's what we're looking for. That's what we should pray for. Lord, give me the confidence that comes from my faith in you, my trust in you as my caring, loving father, who exhibits merciful love. The second one, and this should make sense, and I think it's very genuine, is a person who 
uh, is genuinely living spiritual childhood is going to be playful. Playful. Children love to play. They like to have fun. They like to engage in playful activity. They don't worry about things. They're always taking something and making it into a game. I'm not talking about childish silliness here, or just being silly or rude, but to have a joyful, playful spirit. And so, yeah, it's joy, it's happiness to a degree, but it's being playful. A child loves to laugh. A child loves to celebrate. A child doesn't worry about things. They're looking forward to going and play and being with their friends and celebrating and having a great time. This is one of the topics I love talking about. St. Thomas Aquinas, in looking at the different virtues, lists one of the virtues as playfulness. The Greek word is eutropalia. And he says, again, a virtue is in the middle. A person who's too silly is not virtuous and can never take anything seriously. And a person who's too serious and somber is not virtuous either. As a playfulness of spirit, sort of a wittiness of the mind. It helps us to relax. But I think a lot of times people say, well, if I'm going to be a saint, I have to be very, very serious. What did St. Teresa of Avila said? You know, Lord, save us from the sour-faced saints. Ah! And I'm not saying that sometimes that we need to be serious. There are times of grieving and mourning. There are times of tragedy that we need to be serious. And we don't want to take and, and be playful with serious things. But to have that lightheartedness, that playfulness. You know, don't, don't be a pious fraud. Well, I need to be very, very serious and show people that, that salvation is serious. No, I really don't think that's the case. And in fact, whenever things do get difficult, whenever things do get hard, to be able to sort of take it lightly and to be able to play, and in a certain sense, even laugh it off. To be able to realize, hey, these things are passing. The Lord still loves us amidst this tragedy. Never inappropriately, but the child, you know, the child doesn't let those things weigh them down. They maintain their playful spirit. I think this becomes particularly important whenever we fall. I didn't really bring it up then because I wanted to bring it up now. One of the keys is the art of failure. Whenever we're trying our best and we fail miserably, to be able to laugh at yourself. Don't take yourself too seriously. People who take themselves too seriously drive me up the wall. But taking yourself so seriously, it's not that big of a deal. Now, granted, I mean, if you've committed some capital offense or whatever and you're facing life in prison, maybe you should take things seriously. But we're not talking about that to be able to have some self-deprecating humor. Uh, and, and Therese, particularly if you look at the end of her life, if you read the Yellow Notebook, The Last Conversations, Therese is, is, is making, making jokes. There's one, how did she say it? I'm not going to get it exactly. She ate some, some soup or some chicken, and then she kind of regurgitated it. She made a little comment about like, oh, look, the, the, the chicken's flown the coop, or the chicken flew away. I don't know exactly what she said, but she was making jokes. She was being, you know, lighthearted. Have you ever noticed that? Like, let's say that there's someone who's really suffering or faced with cancer. The people who really freak out are the ones around them. The person in the middle of it, if they're at peace, 
usually can kind of laugh, and not, or not always laughing, but there's a lightheartedness. Uh, and, and so the, 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 the people that I know who love the spiritual childhood are the ones playing jokes. They're the ones who are very, very lighthearted. They can be serious when necessary. And their lightheartedness cheers people up. It bowies the spirit. And it really is a sign because they're going to think of other people. Oh, no. They're, they're often, quite often, the life of the party. And this is, I think, a real sign of holiness, not somberness, not misery. You know, we're not dour Calvinists here. We're Catholics. We like to celebrate. We like to have a good time. We like to laugh. And this is part of, I think, a genuine, playful spirit. Number three, and, and this is one that, uh, that I really, really love, is wonder. Not wander, but wonder. A child wonders at creation. A child is amazed by everything. A child uh, loves to look around and, and ask questions. You know, I have one of the, the young women I work with. Uh, she, she's very, very funny, and she's one of my directees. She's joining a religious order, and I love her to death. But she is the most spacey person you've ever, ever met. I mean, I sent her a meme the other day of St. Anthony saying, really, you lost the keys again? She's losing stuff all the time. Oh, look, there's a bird. Uh, look at the Holy Spirit. It'd be really funny if the Holy Spirit leaves a surprise. Uh, so, you know, but, but so I said, you know, she beat herself up when she loses stuff. But, you know, I said, you know, you're, you're my child who, who wonders at things. And, and it's funny, you know, one of the books that I think of, how many of you have ever read The Little Prince uh, by Antoine Saint-Exupéry? The little child, who, the childful spirit who wonders at things, who, who, who just is amazed. Uh, so as I mentioned yesterday, I stumbled upon an, an essay that I had never seen before. It was actually written by a meditation by John Paul II in 1994 that wasn't published until after he was dead. And it was on the givenness of, of reality. And it's sort of basically theology of the body just repackaged and talking about how he's realized as a priest relationships and friendships were given to him. He was given the task of caring for people. But ultimately, how the whole creation, the world is given to us, and how he sort of wonders at that. We didn't deserve creation. We didn't deserve the world that we have. You certainly don't deserve the weather you have here in Southern California. We in Louisiana deserve that. The joke. Uh, but, you know, but everything is just like, wow, you know, the wonder at creation, the givenness of everything. Um, everything is a gift. And children have that sense of wonder. Um, and it's something of that childlike spirit, wondering at the world, wondering at creation, maybe even being a little bit spacey at times. It's something that I don't think we need to get rid of. I mean, don't be wandering and spaced out when you're driving on the freeway. That's dangerous. <laughs> but uh, the reality is to that childlike spirit, to wonder at salvation, to wonder at the gospel, to wonder at all these different things as a matter of a childlike spirit that hopefully people never lose. And then as we get older and we become less serious about things and less somber and sour face, to be able to ask those questions, 
to be able to wonder about creation. Uh, you know, I, I, I love to read books on biology and science and just wonder, I always like, I love birds. I don't like these feral parrots. They're crazy around here. Y'all been hearing those crazy parrots? Pasadena, I didn't even know that. If you go online, they have these feral parrots that are insane. They're like your drunk, obnoxious neighbors. I mean, they are screaming and yelling, making noise all the time. But birds fascinate me. And why are the birds have all these different colors? And so I got this book and I read it for Christmas, just on like the evolution of birds. You know, for millions of years, these birds have had these little dances and the color of their, their feathers and the way they, some birds even build these little houses to attract females. Fascinating. And this is part of it. We don't have to just wonder about spiritual realities, but little things like birds or stupid feral parrots. Where do these things come from? Why, why are parrots so loud? They're so obnoxious. But there's a reason. They have this little language. They talk to each other. <laughs> parrots are the jerks of the bird world, it appears. So, do y'all don't have a parrot infestation in Las Vegas, do you? Pigeons. All right. they're, probably, they're pretty obnoxious too, huh? All right, from that, that wonder... And we wonder at the givenness of creation, that childlike spirit. Another characteristic is the child is thankful. The person who's spiritual is very thankful. Thankful for what they have been given. Thankful for reality. Thankful for what they have received. Now, granted, I'm not saying that all kids are like this. Sometimes kids can be entitled and, and, and not in the best attitude. But a spiritual child is thankful cultivating that attitude, not of entitlement, but everything they've received, relationships, friendships, their faith, thankful for these things. And the more I read in, in like the life of Mother Teresa or the life of a lot of the saints, one of those characteristics was thankfulness, never taking anything for granted. But Jesus, of course, we'll see, always thanking the Father for what he had been given, thanking for what he had received. So to be able to cultivate that attitude of gratitude that often can help us overcome the tendency towards complaining and griping. Uh, going back to our understanding, our idea of this propensity we might have towards perfectionism and comparing and despairing that comes from our own lack of self-worth. Well, I wish I had a husband like her, or I wish I had a car or a family. One of the best antidotes for that is stopping and being thankful for what we have. You know, if you are thankful for the, the, the Honda CRV that you have, you're not going to get mad when that person is driving around in the Audi A5. You're not going to get mad. You're going to be like, oh, I'm glad they have that, but I'm really happy with what I have. I'm thankful for it. And so the, the, the child who is thankful for his family or his home or the toys that he or she has is not going to be warning the toys of another person. To be able to be thankful for what we have helps us to avoid compare and despair and compete and defeat. Helps us to focus on identity. Heavenly Father, this is what you gave me. I'm really super thankful for it. That is a genuine attitude or an element of being a spiritual child. Number five, and this we've already sort of talked about it, 
But a person who can admit their own weakness, admit their own failure, and maybe use it as a way to gain access to the Father, learns genuine humility. Okay, this idea, well, we all want to be saints. So to be a saint, we have to be humble. And I never tire of saying this. You know, I think there are a lot of people think, well, I'm going to be humble. So the number one characteristic of being humble is I have to whisper. Very humble people whisper all the time. Because when you whisper, you're very humble. No, that's, that's not necessarily the case. But you know, I'm, I'm very meek. I'm very humble. I'm always going to look down. No. Some of the most humble people that I know are the loudest people that I know. This is, we have this false idea. A truly humble person can acknowledge their weaknesses and their strengths. Would Mozart, if he was humble, say, well, I'm really not a good composer. I'm a terrible piano player. No, that's false humility. You're a liar. The humble person is the one who's going to say, yeah, I do have these talents, and I'm thankful that I have them because the Lord gave them to me. I know where they came from. Not claiming them for themselves, but also referencing it as all as a gift that comes from the hands of a father who loves us. And so it's not only admitting, yeah, I'm weak. You know, I'm not the best at this. Uh, and I can embrace it, and I can laugh at it. But I do also have my strengths. Genuine humility is accepting reality for what it is. And the child hopefully can do that. The child, child will often just say what it's thinking. doesn't necessarily no discretion. You know, I, I, love, I love it whenever uh, you hear these stories about, like, kids who are in church with their parents, and the little three-year-old looks at the man behind him and says, hey, why is that man fat? Or something like that. And the mom's, you know... Get all bent out of shape. But the kid's just saying the truth. Now, granted, he's going to learn discretion as he or she gets older, but there's a certain humility there. There's a certain innocence. Calling things like they are. Calling a spade a spade. Seeing what, for reality for what it is, but particularly seeing ourselves and our own situation for what it is from that attitude of thankfulness. Number six is one that I could probably talk a lot more on. One of the characteristics of a true spiritual child is purity of heart. Purity of heart. And this is not just in the realm of sexuality. This is in the realm of the vision of reality, a certain innocence, a certain purity, uh, a lack of guile, you know, a lack of, of, of suspicion, a lack of always thinking someone's plotting against them. But a genuine there when it comes to their own bodies, when it comes to sexuality in the world. It's not something, there may be a struggle, I'm not saying that it's not the case, but they look at the world in a genuine purity of heart. And, and how many of you have met people that you know have very pure hearts? Yeah, you know it when you see it. That person has a pure heart. And, and, I, and I can tell you from the perspective of at least a man, it's like, oh, uh, you need to guard that. And, and they're always, and I can see it, and they're girls that I work with, and, and the guys, the guys will not mess with. The guys will not mess with because they sense that purity of heart. They're, they don't even want to try. It's like, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, when they open up the Ark of the Covenant. They know if they try to mess with that very, very pure, holy heart, their faces are going to melt. And so it's true. And particularly a lot of the young women I know that are discerning religious life, 
The guys know it, but there's some, there's a deep sense and that deep respect to maintain the purity of heart. Now, granted, it doesn't mean that maybe at one time you were not pure of heart. You're maybe like Mary Magdalene. And through that conversion, over time, the heart does become pure. And that, that not a prudishness. It's never being prudish. Uh, it's never being easily scandalized by things. But really seeing things and the reality through the eyes of a child. And so what happens is, is our heart, if we're going to see things with our heart, as we get hurt, as time goes by, resentment builds up, uh, self-hatred it begins to cloud our vision. We don't, we're suspicious. Uh, we, we, have, we, we don't look at things in a pure way. The pure heart is able to see things as they really are and to be able to see the good in other people, to be able to sense and spot that good and to be able to draw it out. Something that's redemptive, something that can really transform. Uh, and so it's, again, something very difficult to describe, an intangible quality, but something that you know when you see it. And the look of a person who has that purity of heart is going to look on you with a really gaze of love, never objectifying, uh, but always cherishing uh, you as an individual. As of course you might imagine, number seven is one we've talked about over and over again, is vulnerability. A person who is a spiritual child, to be a child, you're going to be vulnerable. Always having proper boundaries, not having no walls or no force fields, having them at the proper times, knowing when to guard yourself, but is going to be vulnerable. Is going to be able to receive people and to be able to allow themselves to be received, to be able to give and receive love in a very, very healthy way. Uh, and again, it's going to look different for different people. You know, there are going to be people in situations you need to protect yourself from. Some people are going to be much more open. Uh, things will roll off their back much more. But you're not going to walk around with walls up all the time, shut off from people. There's going to be that vulnerability. Uh, you're going to be willing to take those risks uh, and possibly get hurt. Um, not necessarily doing crazy like the bird found a place to stay. Um, but well, that's not a parrot. A parrot got in here, we're aggravating the heck out of us. Um, so a, a general vulnerability, I think I'm not going to get into that too much more because I know we've already talked about it a fair amount. Number eight, and, and this is so true, a desire for prayer. Not just like, I have a desire to go say my prayers. No, I have a desire to be with Jesus. I have a desire to spend time with the Father. And so it's the desire is prayer is not doing, but it's being. And so, wow, I, 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 haven't, I haven't spent time with my friend. I haven't spent time with my father. I want to go there. I want to develop that relationship. It's not a chore. It becomes something essential, particularly a desire to encounter Christ in the Eucharist, where Mass isn't like, oh, I forgot to go. Or, oh, i got to put it in my schedule. It's something you really want, and in fact, you probably need. For people who are children, they know that if they haven't prayed for a while, they haven't had that communion, there's something missing, there's something lacking. Just like a child wants to spend time with his friends, probably spend time with his friends more than he wants to do homework or other things. If we know the love of the Father... We want to spend time with him. We want to spend time with Jesus. 
And so prayer doesn't become an obligation from the exterior, something that flows from the interior, something that may, you may be very dry at prayer, it may be very, very difficult, but it's something that you want and that you know that you need. A child needs to spend time with the Father. Course number nine is peace. We've talked about that enough. The child is at peace. The child's not going to worry about things. They know that his father, her father, has got it under control. There are going to be times that may be fearful. We'll run to the father. When they make mistakes, they trust they can go and say, hey, I made a mistake. I need some help. They're not going to be judged. And so there's a sense of peace there. There are going to be times of temptations to lose the peace, but they are going to really focus on living in that peace, a peace that pervades their life, and other people can sense it. They want to be around that person because that person has a very peaceful spirit, and that peace comes from living confidence. Here's number 10, and number 10, along with confidence, is the most important, but it's the one that you're not going to like. The one that you're not going to like. A person who is living genuine spiritual childhood lives in the freedom of a child. True, genuine freedom. And the knowledge that the Father knows you, loves you, and trusts you. This is so key, ladies. The Father trusts you. You do not have to ask him for every little thing. He is not a helicopter parent. God the Father does not want to micromanage your life. Imagine if you, every morning you woke up, you had to make a phone call to your dad, and your dad's going to say, this is what you're going to wear today, this is what you're going to eat for breakfast, this is how you're going to get to work, this is what you're going to do at work, this is what you're going to watch on TV. I can tell you, if I asked my college students that, they'd say, there's no way they put up with that for five minutes. But yet, that's what you want. You want certainty all the time to make sure that you never make a mistake. But God the Father is not there to micromanage your life. Why would your human father drive you bananas if he wanted to do that, but yet we want him to do that for our own life? Why? Certainly, God the Father may have certain signposts in your life that he wants you to follow. But in general, he gives you freedom. He trusts you. And that's the scariest thing. The absolute scariest thing. Go. Give me glory. Make your own choices. Be prudent. Ask for my help when you need it. But don't come every five seconds. A child is not, who's truly secure is going to feel safe. It's going to make their own decisions. As you get older, quit expecting God to be a helicopter parent. He's not going to do that. You're going to make mistakes. Yeah, that's how it's going to work. He's going to take you back. You may make some big errors. That's fine. The problem is, it's not so much that we don't trust God, we don't trust ourselves. But yet, God the Father trusts you. He trusts you to make decisions. I go back to this all the time when it comes to vocational discernment. I talked about it a couple of retreats ago. This is the parable of the talents. 
One person gets 10, one person gets five, one person gets one. And the master says, go make me some money. He doesn't say, well, I want you to invest your 10 talents in these mutual funds, and then I want you to sell in about five days, and before the market bottoms out, I want you to go set up a lemonade stand, and I want you to go do, he doesn't tell them that. He lets them make their own decision. All he says is, bring me back money. And that's ultimately what I think the Lord says. There are going to be certain times, he, if he does say, I want you to do this, he's going to make it very, very clear to you. But other than that, do what you do and do it for my glory. In very rare cases do I think the Lord has a specific career set out for you. I mean, there's certain things he doesn't want you to do. And certain times, maybe he does want people to do certain things. But in general, just like your, your dad. I mean, imagine if your dad said, you're going to major in this. This is going to be your job. No. He gives you freedom. A true child who lives in that maturity can live with that freedom. Follow the Spirit. To always ask the Father for guidance. But sometimes he's going to say, you got to make your own decision. you got to make your own decision. Does this make sense? This is the hardest part. And this drives me absolutely insane. Because, and again, I don't want to sound scandalized, scandalized, God has a plan for your life. What does that mean exactly? Because I think a lot of people think when you say, God has a plan for your life, that every moment of your life is mapped out. No, it's not. Certain points may be mapped out. But the thing is, is he's not, that, that means that God is a micromanager of your life, and he's simply not. Simply not. He gives you freedom. Now, he's going to guide you, and he's going to sometimes move you in the direction that he wants you to go. But you've got a free will. You can make choices. And that's what's so beautiful, that God the Father trusts you. We've got to learn to trust ourselves. But if you don't live in the love of the Father, there's that insecurity. There's that self-doubt. Why am I making the wrong decision? And it becomes crippling, and you can't do anything. You can't do anything. And you live in fear all your life and uncertainty. A true sign of the person, people that I know that live that spiritual childhood, have that confidence, not pride. They're going to step out. And you know, and sometimes if they make a mistake, the father's going to say, hey, I gave, I gave you the choice. And maybe it was something that the father didn't want you to do, but you made the choice, and he's going to go with it. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. You make the decision, I'm going to back you. You make the decision, I'm going to back you. But do it for God's greater glory. Now, this is a radical thing because we got this idea that God wants to micromanage our lives. No. Father trusts you. Come to believe in that. So, sort of wrapping this up before we, we get to the next part, uh, we get ready for mass confessions. When really, what I would encourage you is to spend some time and looking at these characteristics that are true, and if indeed, as we said, that Jesus and Mary are the ultimate examples of spiritual childhood, maybe a good meditation would be able to, to, to see this in them. Particularly, I think, in Mary. Hey, you're going to be the mother of God. What, what, what do I do next? Mary just said, I, I need to go see Elizabeth. She didn't have to be told to go see Elizabeth. She just knew it. She went. And the father didn't map her life out. She was always in communion. She followed she followed the Spirit, followed her own will, and the Lord backed her. She made that prudential decision. And so, 
We need to look at their lives and to be able to hopefully imitate it. And so that's the thing, and I'll close with this, that you said, Father, that sounds great. But you know what? You're, you're, you're not going to do it tomorrow. So presumably, we can see perfectionism is not bad. I want to live spiritual childhood. We, we've prayed to be able to be received by the Lord. We've begun the healing process. I thought I came up with this quote at breakfast this morning. Coffee was maybe very strong. And then come to find out, I kind of came up with it, but not really. I, saw, I thought of this quote. It takes a lifetime to grow into a child. But actually, Pablo Picasso said it takes a lifetime to grow young. So this is a variation of that. It's not going to happen overnight. Some of you may have a natural disposition to do it much better than others. Some of you may be more responsive to grace than others. Some of the Lord may want you to be a child right now. But in general, it's going to take us all a lifetime to become a child. So don't freak out. Be patient. Every day, Lord, I thank you for the gift of life. Put my life in your hands. Please allow me to be received by you and then move forward. You're going to make some mistakes. You're going to go in the wrong direction. Trust me, the Lord sees your goodwill. And it, like, like, you know, like a, like a little dog that's going that direction, he's going to yank the chain and pull you back. That was going to work. I'm going to do it very, very subtly. Thank you very much.